top. We don't realize how important it is sometimes that we be in regular fellowship. When you find yourself separated from regular fellowship and regular commitment, your, your life begins to begin to unravel spiritually. And then that unraveling extends to uh, personal unraveling and then relational difficulties. I don't know how many of you know what I'm talking about, but I just am struck by how critical it is that uh, we be in regular fellowship. That we, I mean, just, just coming to a worship service, just gathering together. On a surface, it may not seem that significant, but week after week after week after week after week, being part of a smaller group like a mini church, week after week after week, being committed to serving the Lord and ministering in the context of, of a fellowship uh, has tremendous impact on your life, tremendous impact on your life. So uh, I just felt like the Lord wanted me to share that. There may be some folks, uh, maybe here tonight, you're, you're wondering why you're here, and uh, I think God just wants you here. And he wants you to develop a regular habit. Uh, Jesus had a regular habit. He, was, he, he worshipped in the synagogues uh, on a week-by-week basis as he lived on this earth. I want to talk to you about our example, who it is we're following, and who it is we are to keep our eyes on. And we're going to look at uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. But there's an interesting dynamic in terms of what do we focus on. Do we focus, we, we put the focus of our life on ourselves. Should we focus on ourselves? No, we shouldn't, but very often we do. Isn't that true? Uh, should we focus on other people? Should we focus on our circumstances? Very often we do, however. They, sometimes uh, our circumstances consume us, don't they? Uh, should we focus on the Holy Spirit? Careful, it's a trick question. <laughs> Who or what should we focus on? Jesus. And, you know, if you've been in the church very often, you know, in the midst of your life crisis... And all of us have them, and, and uh, things that threaten you, uh, you're, you're scared, you don't know what's going to happen next, you, you're, you're kind of, your life's at, at, at a bit of an odds, and you ask for counsel, and, and typically the counsel will, will uh, be summed up in this, in, this, in this sentence. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Anybody ever hear that? Just keep your eyes on Jesus. And, we, and, and it's probably the wisest counsel we can give to anybody. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And you say, well, is that, is that a biblical counsel? Yes, because we see it very clearly spelled out here in the book of Hebrews in this particular passage. And the context, remember, is there are this group of people who are professing believers and who are, for a number of reasons, persecution, hardship, uh, insecurity, and you go on and on and on, they are falling out of fellowship, 
they're giving up on the faith, or at least they're tempted to. And the whole point of this letter is to urge them to keep on in the faith. Don't drift away. To press on in the faith. And uh, he reaches this climax in chapter 12 when he has just described to us the, all these tremendous examples of people who, who kept up, who kept up, who stayed in the faith, and who all exhibited of various aspects of a life of faith. And then he points us to the one final example, the greatest example of faith, and that's Jesus himself. So I want you to read with me these three verses. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, again referring back to all the people in chapter 11, all those people had a tremendous testimony of faith. He says, Let us, now it's our turn, let us throw off everything that what? That hinders. We talked about that last week. Talked about a number of things that are, are typical sources of hindrance in our life. Unless we throw them off, they can become sin that so easily entangles. So he says, he says, let us now. Let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now there's a race marked out for us. You can say in a general sense, we're all in the same race. But in a more particular sense, each of us are in our own individual race. God has marked out a race for you, and he's marked out a race for me. And our races are not identical. Each race uh, encompasses uh, different obstacles, different kinds of hurdles, uh, different kinds of uh, uh, water hazards, if you will. Some of them are, uh, the hills are different. They're located in different places. Some of them come on rocky ground and, and so forth. So each of us have a race that's marked out for us. But each of us are to, are to run it with endurance. And he says, for encouragement, and as a reminder, he says, let us fix our eyes on what? On our feet. I mean, there's nothing, nothing can throw you off your stride more easily if you're running a race than to focus on your feet. If you've ever run a race, you know what I'm talking about. Any, any, any coach will tell you, don't look down at your feet when you're running. There's nothing that can throw you off your stride easier or slow you down than if you look to the side at the other runners. Are they catching up? Where am I in the race? Or if you look up in the, in the, in the stands to wave at mom. These things slow us down. These things trip us up. The focus is not on ourselves. The focus isn't just on the mechanics Athletes, athletes practice, and they practice hour upon hour upon hour upon hour so that their moves become very natural. They don't have to think about them. My son plays basketball, and, and, and he dribbles and dribbles and dribbles the ball. He dribbles the ball, dribbles the ball. He can dribble it behind his back, between his legs. He, dribb- he, just, he can do it almost in his sleep so that when he's in a game, he doesn't have to think about it. He's not focused on the mechanics He's not focused on, how should I dribble? He can react to the, to the, to the, to the pressure of the moment. Because his focus is on someplace else, not on the mechanics. So he says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. We're in this race. Our focus is going to be on Jesus. 
Not on other people. Not on, on, on our circumstances. Not the condition of the track. Not looking up in the stands to see who's looking at us. Our focus is on Jesus. He says, he describes Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So you see this, this joy that's almost in opposition to the cross. There's this, there's this joy set against the cross, and this joy, he, he has this joy, and this joy allows him now to endure the cross. And we'll talk about that, something of what that means. Scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It is easy to grow weary and lose heart. But if we're keeping our focus, keeping our gaze, keeping our eyes, our attention focused on Jesus and, and what he did, what he went through, what he experienced, and his success, if I can use that word, no matter what our circumstance, no matter what the race is like, we will not grow weary and lose heart. Now let's talk about this. You know, the Christian race is very much like a sporting event. This is why we have this analogy used by the writer. And again, there are Christians that, that are preoccupied with themselves. Isn't that true? You're in the race, but you're, you're preoccupied with yourself. Maybe not in a selfish or egotistical way. And in some sense, we need to, be, we need to have some kind of concern for ourselves. But we are not the focus. Well, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me? What do I look like? What do I look like? What do I look like? You can, you can really make yourself the focus. And then once you've done that, your eyes are off of who? Jesus. Now, certainly, we, as I said, we need, we need to be concerned about ourselves, but we're not the focus. And if we do become the focus, we won't run the race well. Now, these are some things I want you to consider. Like we said last week, throw off things that hinder us. And again, these are much akin, things like this are much akin to things that hinder us. They hinder us in the race. You say to yourself, what is my focus? What is my focus, really? There are a lot of Christians who their focus is other people. They're always concerned in comparing themselves with other people and comparing other people with them. They're always looking around and, and, oh, I wish I had this life and I wish I had that person's ministry. I wish I was... Or they're worried so much about what people think and or say or are doing. Now, certainly we need to be permeable and open to... Uh, what other people say and think, especially sometimes some criticism. I mean, a little criticism never hurt, right? A lot does, but a little doesn't. (laughs) Some criticism can be helpful. But if we are focusing on others, then, beloved, we are bound to stumble. Now, we can can focus on circumstances. That's 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 another common mistake that, that many Christians make. They, they tend to focus on their circumstances. And their circumstances become all-consuming to them. And they lose the focus where it needs to be. Where is your focus? Really, 
It's easy to say, I believe in Jesus. It's easy to say, I'm a Christian. Anybody can say it. I can go down to Skid Row and give any drunk five bucks and he'll say to me all day long, Jesus is Lord. Isn't that true? But is Jesus Lord in that person's life? No. Are we to focus on the Holy Spirit? Careful. Are we to focus on the Holy Spirit? No. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Doesn't Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, that we are to be being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit? Our lives are to be full of the Holy Spirit. And if we are full of the Holy Spirit then guess where our focus will be? On Jesus. On Jesus. Now, why is that so? It's because that's where the Spirit's focus is. Isn't it? Look at John chapter 16, verse 14. These are Jesus' words about the Holy Spirit. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, it says, He will bring glory to me. What's the Holy Spirit's job? To bring glory to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's job is to get people to focus on Jesus, not on Him. And there's a whole bunch of Christians running around focused on the Holy Spirit. Now that may sound like blasphemy, what I just said. It's not. We want to be full of the Holy Spirit, but we don't focus on the Holy Spirit. We're full of the Holy Spirit so we can focus on Jesus. If you're not full of the Holy Spirit, there's no way you can focus on Jesus. There's no way. Because you'll be so consumed with, with yourself, other people, your circumstances, etc., 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 and the devil will have a field day with your thought life. Got to be full of the Holy Spirit. Now, someone says, Well, how do I get full of the Holy Spirit? How does one get full of the Holy Spirit? Anybody? You ask. You just ask. You get up in the morning and say, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Fill me with your spirit, believing by faith that he will fill you with his spirit. You believe by faith. Is it his will that you be full of his spirit? Absolutely. Is it his will that you ask? Absolutely. So if you ask according to his will, we all then we know that we already have what we ask. First John chapter 5, right? So it's a whole faith matter. Okay, Lord, I've asked. I believe you fill me with your spirit now. And then you watch your life. You observe your life. And throughout the day, you say, Lord, Lord, refresh the filling. Refresh the filling. And as you do that, you'll see that your focus will remain on Jesus. Now, we're told that we are to focus on Jesus because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We're to focus on him, nobody else. Our neighbor isn't the author and perfecter of our faith. Our neighbor isn't our example. Jesus is. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. What does it mean he's the author? Well, it means very simply that he is the originator. He's the pioneer. He's the one who begins. He's the one who takes the lead. He is our chief leader. He is our chief example. He is our preeminent example of faith. Jesus. Is there anybody else, is there anything else in all of creation that we should be focusing on? Huh? No. 
Where, we should, be, where should our focus be? On Jesus. On Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Remember way back there? The writer says to us that Jesus, speaking of him, says he was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. That means very simply that he lived the supreme life of faith. Tempted in every way. But he didn't give in to the temptation. Why? Because he was living by faith. Living by faith. When the devil tempted him in the wilderness, what was Jesus' reply to the devil? His reply each time was an expression of trust in his father. It was an expression of his trust in his father's word. Didn't Jesus answer with the word? Every reply. And every reply was an expression of his trust in his heavenly father. He was living by faith, wasn't he? Jesus would not bypass his father's will just to get some food. He wouldn't bypass his father's will to test his father's protection or to test his father's lordship. He would not do it. He would wait until the father supplied. He would wait until his father protected. He would wait until his father directed. And when Jesus' ordeal was over, when Jesus' ordeal was over, how did his heavenly father provide for him? Anybody remember? He sent angels to minister to him. Now think about this in your own life situation. In the midst of a, of a, of a, a, a tremendously trying ordeal, you have just come off of a 40-day fast. Would you be hungry? Would you be vulnerable? Would you be weak? Well, maybe not. Maybe you'd be pretty spiritually strong after a 40-day fast. Now, in the flesh, you'd think, well, I'd just, be, I'd just be like a wet noodle. But you don't know how God would strengthen you in that fast. And you, in the midst of this, now temptation just comes bearing down on you. And you waited it out. You waited it out. Do you think that maybe God might send some angels to minister to you? Does God still do that kind of thing? Yes, he does. He absolutely does. You see, you just just don't know. When you wait on the Lord, when you wait on the Lord, your focus is on him, your trust is in him, you just don't know that when the ordeal is finally over, how he has carried you through and how he will minister to you. Very, very important. Jesus trusted his Father implicitly for everything and in everything. There's an example for us. We trust him for everything. You say, well, I'm a brand new Christian. I don't know. I don't know all that I'm supposed to know. You can know this, that there's a God in heaven who loves you. He is your heavenly Father. You can trust him in everything and for everything. You can wait. You can wait. You don't have to take matters into your own hands. You don't have to panic. You can trust him. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 30. Trusted him. He says, I, by myself, I can do nothing. And that's true of us. He told us in, in uh, John's gospel, the 15th chapter, he says, he says, you need me. You can't do anything by yourself. 
And if the truth be known, we can't. He says, I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but rather him who sent me. Now, who does that sound like Jesus is dependent on? Yeah, God the Father, absolutely. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Another example. Just before his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion, Jesus says these words to his Father. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verse 39. He fell on his face. He prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet what? Not my will, but yours be done. See, he knew. He knew he could trust his Father. He knew. That was the bottom line. That's where he came to. Trusted him absolutely. Beloved, whatever the prospect of hardship, whatever the prospect of suffering, he trusted his heavenly Father. His Father's will was what he lived by. His Father's will was what he died by. His Father's will. It was all he ever considered. When we studied chapter 11, we looked at all the great saints of chapter 11, all those heroes of faith. But all the faith of all those people in chapter 11 is wonderful and as tremendous as their faith was, all their faith together could not match Jesus' faith. They're great examples, great illustrations, but Jesus is the supreme illustration of faith. Jesus is not only author of our faith, but he is also its perfecter. He's the one who carries it on to completion. He started well. Would he complete well? Would he finish well? He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus continued to trust his Father until he could say, it is finished. He would continue his whole time trusting his Father until he could say those words, it is finished. His work was finished not only in that it was completed, but that it was perfected. He, he just didn't finish it. He perfected it carried it through to perfection. You know, if a, if a composer of a great musical um, composition were to die in the middle of that composition, we would say that uh, his work on that piece is over, wouldn't we? But his work on that piece wouldn't be finished, would it? It's just over. Not so with Jesus. On the cross, Jesus' work was not only over, but it was finished and it was perfected. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is our example. Jesus didn't quit. Jesus didn't sit down at the middle of the race. Jesus didn't sit down close to the finish line. Jesus kept on. He ran straight toward the finish line, didn't he? And guess what? It was only then, when he crossed the finish line, did he sit down. He sat down when and where it was appropriate. Where did he sit? At the right hand, that's right. At the right hand of the throne of God. 
He finished the race. He finished the race. Quitting, sitting down, giving up. Can it seem attractive at times? Can it? You think, oh, what am I doing? You know, it's just so easy just to bail, just to give up. No matter how badly in the beginning you wanted to finish the race, it, it is possible that somewhere along that race, the temptation to give up, the temptation to sit down, the temptation to quit can be really strong. The temptation might come when there's just when there's weariness, when there's fatigue, when the threshold of pain becomes close to unbearable. I can't go another step. I can't go another day. It's too hard. It's too, it, I just don't have it in me. Strong temptation to sit down, to give up. To drop out of the race becomes attractive when those around you may show no enthusiasm for your dreams and convictions. So why, what, why am I here? What, what's the deal? What, no one's with me, it seems like. It can be easy when you have critics. Critics who question everything from your integrity and your motives to your wisdom. To give up. To quit the race. To stop sounds real good when you look at others and they appear more comfortable, they appear more successful, and they appear more rewarded. Why am I doing this? When I'm looking around and I'm seeing all these other people have it much better than I have, I think. The temptation to stop the race is strong, isn't it? Stopping seems to make sense. When all your plans and expectations may just simply dissolve in a a, a cloud of failure or inadequacy. I can't do it. I failed. I fail. I may as well just give up and quit. Are Are these common temptations? Are these things common to our lives? And quitting the race seems like the thing to do when you let your spiritual tanks run low. And there's, there's no more resolve down deep inside of you. There's nothing to draw on because the spiritual tanks have run low. I'm not full of the Holy Spirit. It's easy. I'm full of despair. I'm full of discouragement. It's easy then to quit. The dream is dead. The enthusiasm is gone. And the resources have dried up. So quit. Why not? Wouldn't anybody? But look to Jesus. So the writer says, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Fix your gaze on Jesus. He's our example. You say, but yeah, but he's Jesus. I'm not Jesus. We're going to get to that. Look to Jesus. Because what he began, he finished. What he began, he finished. And we're told by the Apostle Paul that the good work that he's begun in you and me, he's going to bring to completion. Jesus finishes what he begins. The Bible is a marvelous account of that. Jesus was there at the creation of the heavens and the earth in the beginning, wasn't he? He was the agent of the creation. 
and you read the last book of the Bible, and you see that, guess what? He's overseeing the recreation of a new heavens and a new earth. Kind of speaks of his eternal resiliency. What he starts, he finishes. He's the author and the perfecter. Not only that, you remember when Jesus selected his disciples, said, come follow me, and he called them out one at a time. The Bible says he loved them to the end. I love that. He loved them to the end. Now his disciples, uh, they were probably not, from, from our perspective, the best choices. I mean, they were unattractive. They were uncooperative. They were flippant, unreliable. They were simple men. They weren't exactly your premier executive committee. I mean, if we, if we had an executive search committee go out and, and, and search for 12 people who could run the church, we'd want the very best quality guys we could find, wouldn't we? But Jesus didn't exactly pick that out. These were guys that never seemed to get it when Jesus talked about dying and cross-bearing. These were guys who at the first hint of trouble there in the Garden of Gethsemane, they cut out. These were guys who denied him. Not exactly a faithful lot, are they? And yet, these were, these were men that, though you and I wouldn't choose them, these were men who Jesus finished with them. He finished with them and they became some of the most remarkable, world-changing men that history has ever seen. Amazing. See, what he begins, he finishes. He's the author and the perfecter. It says something about his unyielding faithfulness to stick with people. Keep our eyes on him. He's the example. Stick it out. The Bible tells us that he came to seek the lost. And he sought the lost right up and over the Mount of Calvary down into a grave, didn't he? It is finished, he cried. When he surrendered his spirit into the hands of his father, who appeared to have hidden himself at the peak moment of Jesus' suffering. Jesus said, why have you forsaken and yet, even on the cross, even Jesus goes through, he finishes the work. Though for all appearances, he's been abandoned. He finishes the work by faith. Is that not a powerful picture? It says something, doesn't it, about the reliability of his saving effort to reconcile us to God. He didn't just begin it. He finished it. He's the author and perfecter. He finished in the simple things, too. Paying his taxes. Didn't he? Paid his taxes? Yes. He talks about fulfilling all righteousness to John the Baptist. He attended to children. He went to the grave of a friend. 
He worshipped in the synagogue on a weekly basis. That was his habit. He provided a home for his mother and saw to her care in his hours of maximum suffering. He attended even to those things. He cared to the very end, even on the cross, when a dying criminal sought his help. And after he died and rose again, we're told that he went back to Galilee to seek out a certain man who had failed, Simon Peter. says something about his integrity and his commitment to detail, doesn't it? No unkept promises. No abandoned intentions. No friends let down. No mission left unfulfilled. Is there anything at all that Jesus failed to finish? I would submit to you, nothing. He finished it all. He is the author and the perfecter. He's our example. Now, in ancient Greece, when they, when they ran their, their games, there was, one, there was one typical race. It was the end, it was the last race of a pentathlon kind of event, five events. And this race, at the end of the race, at the finish line, there was a, a pedestal. And on the pedestal uh, hung a wreath of leaves. This was, the, this was awarded to the winner. The idea was that you didn't enter the race except to win. There was a reward at the end of the race. Nobody enters a race without some kind of expectation of reward. Isn't that true? There's some expectation of reward. That's why you get in the race. That's why you enter the conflict. That's why you participate in the, in the contest, if you will. There's some expectation of reward. This is common to all of us. Now, the reward may be nothing more than maybe a ribbon, a trophy, a wreath of leaves. It may be a prize that's worth a lot of money. It may be that you, you enter the race, and sometimes the reward is fame and recognition. Sometimes, and occasionally, the race is run just for the sheer exhilaration of running the race. All that being true, the race that is spoken of, and that Greek race that we talk about, and the race that's described here in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, these races were not run for the sheer exhilaration of running the race. The race that's described was called the agon. The agon. It was the race of agony. It was a marathon. It was the race that never seemed to end. Sometimes our trials are like that, huh? Is there going to be any end to this? It's just agonizing. This is the race that we're called to. It's not, you don't, we don't run it for just the sheer exhilaration of running this race. There has to be some expectation of reward. If we don't have something to look forward to, we wouldn't enter it, much less finish it. Does that make sense?
Jesus did not run his race of faith for the pleasure of the race itself. I want to suggest to you that though he may have experienced some significant measure of satisfaction in seeing people healed, in seeing people comforted, in seeing people set on on the road to faith and started on the way to heaven, he did not leave his Father's presence. He did not leave his glory. He did not endure temptation. He did not face fierce opposition by the devil himself. He didn't suffer ridicule, scorn, blasphemy, torture, and crucifixion by his enemies. He didn't experience the misunderstanding and denial of his own disciples for the sake of whatever few pleasures and satisfactions he could get here while on earth. I want to suggest to you, he was motivated by immeasurably more than what this life had to offer. I want to suggest to you, that only what was at the end of the race could have motivated Jesus to leave what he did and to endure what he did. Jesus ran for two things. For the joy set before him and to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's why Jesus ran that race. For the joy set before him. That was his motivation. And to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. He ran for the joy of exaltation. That may be hard to grasp. You say, I thought he, I thought he, I thought he ran the race. I thought he, all he did was, was because he loved us. The Father's love called his son to run this race, and he said to his son, when you finish the race, you shall be exalted. That every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at at what Jesus' prayer is in John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. Here's Jesus' prayer. We call this his high priestly prayer. John chapter 17, when he prays for his disciples, he prays for himself, prays for his disciples, and he prays for all of us, the church, in the ensuing ages. He says to his father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work. See, he's the author and perfecter, right? And that word completing literally means I brought to perfect finish what you've given me to do. He says, by completing the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, what? Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus didn't just run the race for the satisfactions of this life. You and I are not running the race just for the satisfactions of this life. There has to be a far greater motivation to be faithful in this race. You can say, well, well, but I, I just believe in what I'm doing now. Hooey! Don't give me that. I don't believe that. I'm not running this race. I'm not enduring what I'm enduring just for the satisfaction of it gives me right now. No, there's a much greater satisfaction. There's a much greater hope. We're told that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He disregarded the shame of the cross. There was a joy that was set before him, I want to suggest to you. Beloved, the prize that we are to run for is not heaven. You say, it's not? No, if you're a true believer, you already have heaven. 
<laughs> Think about that. Heaven's already yours. We're already seated in heavenly places. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. We're already there. We're not running for heaven. You say, we're not? What are we running for? We're running for the same prize Jesus ran for, and we achieve it in the same way Jesus achieved it. Really? Yes. What's that? The joy of exaltation. The joy of exaltation. God promises us we will be exalted. And that will be ours if we glorify him on earth just as Jesus did. And we glorify God by allowing his life, his attributes to shine through us. And by doing his will in everything. Doing his will in everything. Listen to Psalm 16, verse 11. The psalmist says, you have made known to me the path of life. This is the way I should go. You fill me with what? Where? In your presence. With eternal what? At your right hand. Now, what do you think the psalmist was looking forward to? David, David wrote that psalm. Do you think David was acquainted with suffering and treachery and difficulty and struggle? Rejection? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And yet here's a guy who wasn't just living this life for the pleasures this life would give him, for the rewards just in this life, for his, his goodies weren't just here. His goodies were where? When finally he would be with the Lord. That's what he says. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Do you remember when Jesus told the parable of the... Uh, Of the stewards, there were two faithful and one unfaithful steward. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, verse 21. Look what he says. His master replied. Remember, the the guy was faithful with the talents that were given to him. And the master replied, well done, good and... Okay, now, does that that reflect, does does that smack anything about you started well and you finished well? Yeah, does it? Okay. So, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's what? Happiness. happiness. Now, in, in, in the NIV translation, the English word is happiness. But the actual word in the Greek is joy. Come and share in your master's what? I want to suggest to you that Jesus had a joy that was set before him. And that joy gave him through vision. He could see through the present circumstance, as difficult as it was. You and I have a joy set before us. You say, say, what am I living my life for? There's a joy set before you that allows you to endure the cross, disregarding its shame. You say, it's so embarrassing. Jesus hung out there naked with people jeering at him, mocking him. He disregarded the shame. He was pressing on. He had a joy set before him. And the joy was his exaltation that his father had promised. The reward of faithful service. The reward of faithful service is exaltation. Beloved, When we anticipate the heavenly reward of faithful service, joy can be ours even now. Even now. When we contemplate the future life, 
with no more sorrow, no more pain, no more crying, no more death. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Wonderful promise, wonderful confidence. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things have passed away. Is that cause for rejoicing? Yes. The fact that we will reign with Christ over a whole new order. Some of you aren't even aware of that. We're going to rule and reign with Christ over a whole new order. We are? We are? I can barely balance my checkbook, and I'm going to rule and reign over a whole new order with Christ? Yeah, look what he says, Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. He says, now if we are children, then we are what? Heirs. Heirs of God and what? Co-heirs with Christ. The Bible says that everything is being put into subjection to Christ. He is, in effect, going to rule everything. And guess what? We are co-heirs. We inherit a whole new creation. We're going to reign with him. You say, what are we going to reign over? I don't know. If indeed we share in his what? That's right. That's right. If we are faithful. If we are faithful. If we are faithful. And he says, in order that we may also share in his, what? Glory. And Paul goes on in verse 18, and he says, Now I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, does that sound anything like what the writer of the Hebrews says in respect to Jesus? For the joy set before him, he disregarded the shame of the cross. Yeah, I think it does. Sounds a lot like that. Look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will what? Who's he, who's he talking about? The saints. The faithful ones. Eternal exaltation and glory. For the joy set before us. One day when you get to heaven, you're going to go, it was worth it. It was worth it. It was worth it. It was worth it. <laughs> In fact, some of us are going to go, oh, I wish I'd done more. I wish I was more faithful. I wish I had been more faithful. I promise you. Beloved, when Jesus, when Jesus went to the cross, he endured all that it demanded of him. All that it demanded. He disregarded the shame, we're told, and he accepted it willingly for the sake of his Father's reward and the joy that anticipation of that reward brought. He was able to see through his present circumstance. He wasn't consumed by the circumstance. He had joy that was set before him. As we run the Christian life, the race of the Christian life, we too can run in joyful anticipation of that same reward. We too can run that way. Beloved, when we get weary, when our faith is low, when we think God has turned his back, when it seems we will never get out of the mess that we're in, and we are sure that our faith can't hold on any longer, read these verses. Read these verses. Read these verses. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that you will not grow weary and lose heart, that you won't give up. Where should you keep your gaze? Where should you keep your focus? On Jesus. On Jesus. These verses are meant to encourage us. Do we need encouragement sometimes? Absolutely. Nothing we will ever, ever be called to endure. Nothing in our whole life that we will ever be called to endure will compare to that which he endured. Jesus, though he is in fact the divine son of God, though he is God in the flesh himself, while on earth he did not live in his own power and he did not live by his own will, but rather what? The power his father provided through the spirit according to his will. This is, the, this is the issue. You say, well, all that's true about Jesus. And I can see how Jesus could do all of that. But I'm not Jesus. That's right. That's right. You see, if Jesus, if he lived in his own power, if he, if he lived in his own glory, by his own will, he'd not be our example, would he? He would he? No. He couldn't be. And beloved, unless we by the Holy Spirit, are truly able to live the same way he lived, then his life would not, just be, would not be an example. It would just be an impossible ideal. It must be possible for us. It has to be possible. If he's held up as the example, if he's held up as the ideal, if he's held up as the one that we follow, then it must be possible for us to do the same things. And he didn't live by his own power. He lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. You and I are called also to be filled with the Holy Spirit, keep our focus on him, and live by that same power. It is possible for us to live the Christian life. It is possible for us to start well. It is possible for us to finish well. It is possible. The question is, will we? Will we? We do not live in our own power. We live in his power. We do not live according to our own will, but we live according to his will. Just as on earth he did not live in his own power, but rather in his father's. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He sums it all up in this verse. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Listen to his words here. He says, I have been, what? Crucified with Christ. Now, does that sound true of us? If you are truly born again, the Bible says you died with Christ. Romans chapter 6. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but who lives in me? Christ lives in me. And the life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who, who's living through me? That's right. How do I live this life? By faith. By faith in the Son of God, who empowers me, who strengthens me, who is my role model, my example, my model, the author and perfecter of my faith. Some of us have a decision to make. Some of us have a decision to make. Some of us have lived lives that are, that are marginal, compromising, weak. Some of us have lived our lives in a way that have, have been, well, I, I'm not perfect, so of course I'm going to fail. We've made excuses for ourselves. Some of us have lived our lives for the wrong goals. 
Some of us have lived our lives with our focus on ourselves or on other people or on our circumstances. We're consumed by these things. We've not lived our lives with our focus and our gaze on Jesus. We've not lived our lives in the confidence and the hope that we can live as Jesus lived. Now, as I say that, I know that it's not computing. Some people are going, I just, just, I can't get a hold of that. I can't get a hold of that. I can live as Jesus lived. Yes. It's not impossible. Experiment. Keep your gaze on him. Look to him. You wake up in the morning, say, Holy Spirit, fill me. God, fill me with your spirit. Lord Jesus, fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Believe by faith that he answers that prayer. He fills you with his spirit. Get up. Go and live that day with the intention of being a faithful steward. And throughout the day, Lord, fill me up. Freshen that filling. Freshen that filling. It's all by faith, isn't it? It's all by faith. So I urge you, if you, are, if you are less than satisfied with your Christian experience, if you haven't seen Jesus truly as the role model and that you can follow him and you can live as he is, then I just want to lead you in a prayer. There's some people certainly tonight who need to, to just kind of tighten things up and make themselves come to grips with who they are and, and, and refresh their commitment to the Lord. There's some others tonight who, well, maybe you don't know the Lord. And maybe you have no real purpose and goals in your life. Maybe you need to begin to take those first steps towards knowing Jesus so that you can follow him, you can walk after him. But whatever your situation, you know who you are, and I, and I just want to pray with you. Would you turn the lights down, please? And I'm going to pray in just a minute, but I don't want to pray by myself. And I just want to know if there's somebody, God has spoken to your heart. There's something, something tonight has struck a responsive chord in you. I don't know what it is, but you know that there's something you've got to move on. You've got to, there's some steps you've got to take. And you don't know exactly what they are, but you know that you have to do something. Then I'm going to invite you to just stand. And, and pray with me by faith. And God will lead you in the way that you should go. But you've got to make that first commitment. Is there anybody at all who wants to pray? Okay. Anybody else? God's talking to your heart. This is not, this is not a guilt motivation. There's just something God has spoken to you. It may be different for every person, but you know that he's spoken to you. You know he's, he's calling you. Maybe it's just that you, you need to really begin to live your life by faith, really live by faith, in the midst of maybe some very, very difficult circumstances right now. Just standing is an expression of faith. It's an acknowledgement. God, I need you, and I'm going to depend on you. Anybody else? Just stand, and we're going to pray.
Okay, good. Now I'm just going to tell you, if you're standing now, I just want you to lift your hands. Those of you who are standing, just lift your hands now. Okay, we're just, it's just like you're, you're, you're surrendering and you're, you're lifting your arms up to your Heavenly Father, just like a little child wants to be lifted up and protected by its parent. That's what we're doing. We're lifting holy hands. We're crying out. You pray with me now. Make this your prayer. Heavenly Father, I just know that you've spoken to my heart tonight. And I know that I need to truly trust you. And my focus has been in other places. Lord, I know that I need to focus on Jesus. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. Strengthen me. Lord, that your spirit can help me, enable me to keep my focus on Jesus. I'm sorry for my foolishness. I'm sorry for uh, my, my focus on other things that just pale in comparison. Lord, I'm stepping out by faith. And I don't know what's going to be next, but I know that you will lead me. I know that you know my future. You have planned it for me. And I pray that I will wait on you for your clear direction. I trust you. And I give my life to you. And I commit myself to Jesus. And again, I give you thanks tonight. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? All right. Now remember, it's by faith now. It's by faith. You hold on and you watch. You watch God begin to lead your steps and give you wisdom. All right? Let's stand together and let's praise his name before we dismiss.